0: It's diplomatic downpour in Delhi from Western countries urging sanctions against Russia. We look at the 10 reasons why the Modi government hasn't budged on its ties with Moscow. Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is episode 56. Now, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was in Delhi at the very end of what looked like a deluge of envoys and ministers from countries that were all pushing sanctions against Russia. They're part of that sanctions regime. In Delhi, Mr. Lavrov met with External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar for bilateral talks. He also met with National Security Advisor Ajit Doval, along with Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And that was quite significant since Mr. Modi has not been meeting any of the other foreign ministers who visited. visit itself and the message from Mr. Lavrov was threefold. He held a press conference What he said was that Russia has not been isolated for the war in Ukraine. Mr. Lavrov, in fact, came to Delhi from Tungshi in China, where he had met with foreign ministers of six countries neighboring Afghanistan. Second message, Russia and India will seek alternative payment mechanisms to the SWIFT system, and the rupee-ruble trade is going to be intensified, he said. In effect, India and Russia will seek ways to bypass the sanctions that have been put in place in the past month by the U.S. partner countries of more than 30 countries. And the third part of the message was that despite the war in Ukraine, there will be no disruptions in Russian supplies of military hardware to India. And Russia says it is happy to supply India for more of its energy requirements, oil particularly as well, according to international agencies. In fact, India has already, in the month or so since the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, already bought the same amount more or less that it bought in the whole of 2021. Take a listen to what Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman actually said after the visit. Well, it's not true. We've started by we've received at least uh, quite a number of uh, barrels I would think about three, four days supply I would put my country's national interest first and I would put my energy security first and uh, and if there are first of all Fuel available and available at a discount. Why shouldn't I buy it? I need it for my people. So we have already started purchasing.
1: You know, it's interesting because we've seen for some time what looks almost like a campaign on this issue. Now, I was just reading a report today that in the month of March, Europe has bought, I think, 15% more oil and gas from Russia than it did the month before. If you look at the major buyers of oil and gas from Russia, I think you'd find most of them are in Europe. We ourselves get the bulk of our energy supplies from the Middle East, about 7.5%, 8% of our oil from the US. In the past, maybe less than a percent from Russia. When oil prices go up, I think it's natural for countries to go out into the market and look for what are good deals for their people. But I am pretty sure if we wait two or three months and actually look at who are the big buyers of Russian gas and oil, I suspect the list won't be very different from what it used to be. And I suspect we won't be in the top 10 on that list.
0: Clearly, this is not an outcome that will please the countries that are part of the coalition against Russia, the US, Europe, Union, Japan, Singapore, Australia and others. And most of them had conducted their missions to Delhi as well, remember? So let's just go through who came to Delhi to meet with the government over a period of just two weeks. Delhi received no less than 15 senior dignitaries. This is definitely a departure from the precedent. Not all of them were here, of course, to push for sanctions. Many were purely discussing bilateral issues, but there's no question that the war in Ukraine, uh, the sanctions, the resultant in economic impact were all on the top of everyone's mind in these meetings. And these meetings included in-person summits with Japan Prime Minister Kishida Nepal Prime Minister Deuba, virtual summit with Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, a phone call from the British Prime Minister Johnson as well, who is expected to visit Delhi in April, while Prime Minister Modi himself is expected to travel in May to Germany and other European countries. So those are going to be some very interesting conversations. Then there were the foreign ministers of UK, China, Austria, Greece, Oman, Mexico, and finally Russia. The National Security Advisors of Germany, Netherlands, and the European Union, Special Envoy of the Indo-Pacific, came to Delhi as well in these two weeks. And the U.S. sent not one but two emissaries: Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Newland, and Deputy National Security Advisor Dalip Singh. Now we dealt with the Chinese foreign minister's visit last week on Worldview, and if you set aside Oman and Mexico, the broad message from the others, in varying degrees of intensity, if you like were firstly to ask India to shift its position on refusing to criticize Russia in any multilateral resolution. In fact, 11 votes of abstention so far at the UN Security Council, UNGA, IEA Human Rights Council as well. India has abstained on each one of those and issued no statement of its own that criticizes Russia, or names Russia. In addition, the US is trying to build a case now for cutting Russia out of the G20 as well. And remember, we spoke about the other sanctions they've already put in place. The second message, from now this is the western side, to offer alternatives to India's military hardware from Russia, making the case that European countries and the United States stand ready, they said, to help India diversify its Russian military purchases. The third message, to discourage India's purchase of oil from Russia in accelerated quantities, although Europe continues to take Russian oil and the US sanctions exempt energy trade the idea that India is increasing and not decreasing oil intakes from Russia definitely worries them. The fourth message, to absolutely oppose any plans by India to work out alternate payment mechanisms to the SWIFT network, which Russia has been thrown out of, or even to increase rupee-ruble trade that seeks to, quote-unquote, prop up the Russian economy. Now, U.S. Deputy NSA, Dalip Singh, even said, that there are consequences for any country that seeks to subvert sanctions. And his words followed U.S. President Biden calling India somewhat shaky amidst the Quad. Then there was the White House uh, National Security Council advisor, official who said uh, India's stand was, quote-unquote, unsatisfactory and unsurprising. U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimondo called any decision by India to buy more Russian oil, quote, deeply disappointing. Now, all these remarks clearly didn't go down well in Delhi. Even so, the reasons for India's stand with Russia are far from just a sense of peak. They are much deeper. So let's just take a look now at all the reasons, because this is a question we keep getting asked. Why is the Modi government not shifting its position? And we've heard several different explanations, so I'm going to put them all together for you. And this stand has come despite all the messages that I told you about, That have come from Washington, London, Brussels, Berlin, Tokyo, Canberra etc. So the first big reason is of course India's traditional relationship with Russia. This was concretized 50 years ago in 1971 in a peace and friendship treaty with the Soviet Union. What this meant was in 1979 India did not criticize the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, 2008 in Georgia, 2014 in Crimea, And in 2022, India has not criticized the current invasion of Ukraine. Now contrast this with India's relationship with the U.S., which is very, very strong and in fact had begun to really take an uptick in the early 2000s, remember, over the civil nuclear negotiations. But in 2003, India didn't just criticize the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The Vajpayee government actually passed a parliamentary resolution against it. So you're seeing the difference in this traditional relationship with Russia. The second, of course, and you hear this all the time, dependence on Russian military hardware. What does this mean? Despite more than a decade of diversifying arms and military hardware purchases uh, from the U.S., from France and other countries, India's purchases from Russia still makes up about 60 percent of its military hardware, 85 percent. Of its spares procurement and nearly all of the technology transfer purchases because remember other countries are not as open about the transfer of technology. India's premier military export remember is the BrahMos that actually stands for the Brahmaputra Moskva and that is a result of India-Russia collaboration. They've just sold The Philippines are trying to sell to other countries as well. The third is that Russia has supported India at the United Nations, particularly since it can use its veto at the UNSC. Often, it has even gone against its own partner, China, to ensure that discussions targeting India are avoided. While Western countries have also supported India, they say, they've certainly not been steadfast on some of the issues, like Jammu and Kashmir, for example. Fourth is India's continental challenges. While India's partnership with the U.S. in the Quad deals with the maritime sphere, remember India's immediate security threats all lie to its continental boundaries, from China at the line of actual control, and Chinese troops still uh, stationed over there for more than two years, Pakistan at the line of control, and then of course now Afghanistan as a haven for terrorists. In this continental scenario, India's Russia partnership and its relations with each of these countries certainly gives it some geographical support. Fifth, there are the economic costs of not dealing with Russia at the time of this global economic crisis. Remember in 2018 when the U.S. put pressure on India to zero out of all oil from Iran. This is the Trump administration. They sent special envoys, ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, to speak to Prime Minister Modi to zero out oil purchases from Iran and then subsequently from Venezuela. The Modi government actually did cave in. And it has suffered subsequently with inflation as they were both in Iran and Venezuela were amongst India's cheapest oil suppliers. Now post COVID, uh, the government simply cannot afford to take another such decision and take another big hit really, if, especially since Russia is selling India oil at large discounts is what we're being told. Now sixth, on renewable energy, India has a lot of support from the EU and from the US. But when it comes specifically to nuclear power, Russia is the only country in the world that currently operates nuclear power plants in India, like Kudankula. The US, France, Canada, Japan, Australia all have civil nuclear deals with India to provide fuel as well as to provide parts for these nuclear power plants, companies to deal with nuclear power plants. But actually, none of them has completed a deal and none of them are currently transacting with India. Some of them due to legal reasons, land acquisition problems slowed by concerns over the non-proliferation treaty and India's refusal to give up nuclear testing. Now, in this kind of a scenario, where India isn't even a member of the nuclear suppliers group, the NSG, despite so many efforts, this more than ever needs Russia's unwavering support. And in the broader scheme, Western sanctions against Russia have been followed by about 40 countries. And we spoke about these in, in, in a past edition of Worldview. But there is a big swathe of others who are just not joining them yet, from Mexico and South America to many countries in Africa, the Middle East, South and Southeast Asia. If the world does get broken into two sides, if you like, of dollar and non-dollar trade, India would want to keep all its options open. So it's not going to close its options with Russia at present. Number eight now. Since 2019, the government has faced sharp criticism from the US and the European Union in particular, uh, also Canada, over democracy and human rights issues, over minority rights, Jammu and Kashmir and the reorganization, Citizenship Amendment Act, the CAA, the NRC, the plans for a consensus, as well as the farmers' protests, if you remember. In contrast, Russian leaders and Russian President Putin never raised these issues with the government, and therefore there is a contrast for India. Ninth are the comfort levels that New Delhi feels with Moscow. Personal ties between Prime Minister Modi and President Putin. Phone calls, visits. Remember, out of all the countries in the world, Mr. Putin did one visit to meet Mr. Biden, one later to meet Xi Jinping in Beijing, and one to Delhi to meet Prime Minister Modi for uh, the annual summit in, in Delhi, where they met one-on-one. There's also a common agenda for both those countries and organizations like BRICS, like RIC, R-I-C, as well as the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. And of course, there is Russian assistance to India providing venues and facilitating, if you like, some talks with China post-2020 and the aggression by the People's Liberation Army. So many reasons over there and we come to the 10th one. And this is one you hear in the public statements as well. And those are the principles of strategic autonomy and of non-alignment. The government, in fact, appears to be asserting India's independence and right to be sovereign in a manner akin to pre-2014, where it seemed as if Indian foreign policy has changed, but clearly not that much. This is the reason given on all governmental actions from the UN vote to buying Russian oil. National interest comes first. So by choosing to stand with Russia, despite Western entreaties and threats, India has certainly taken a tough position. The challenge really lies in keeping that line even if the West decides to take tougher measures on India's dealings with Russia. And that means trade barriers, sanctions and other measures. India's strategic autonomy or non-aligned posture can only win the day if it is genuinely autonomous, doesn't take decisions based on compulsions or in fact anything other than national interests. And that cuts both ways off this debate between Russia and the West. I'm going to give you some reading recommendations. Obviously, this adds on to every other book that I've told you about. And I certainly hope you are able to, to see at least or go through some of these. The first is a very recent book called War on Peace. It was given to me as a present. And it really has been very interesting to read. The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence by Ronan Farrow. It's a good book on why the U.S. is not carrying as much weight in the world as the past, as I told you, compared to Iran now Russia. Then there is Non-Alignment 2.0, a foreign and strategic policy of India in the 21st century. This was, of course, written nearly a decade ago by a number of scholars, including Shamsaran and Shivshankar Menon. And then there is a subsequent updated paper, which I've spoken about earlier, published by the Center for Policy Research. It's called India's Path to Power, Strategy in a World Adrift. It's essential reading and this one is available online as well. So please do go through it. Then there is India's Foreign Policy Dilemma over Non-Alignment 2.0. This is by Siddhantu Tripathi and it is a really very thoughtful read of where are the challenges for India from Non-Alignment 2.0, the new version. Mm-hmm. Then there's the Oxford Handbook of India's Foreign Policy. I've certainly enjoyed this. Edited by David Malone, C. Rajamohan and Srinath Raghavan. Does India Negotiate? Very interesting book by Karthik Nachi looking at specific places where India has done negotiations and and how those have fared. Decision-making in foreign policy and India-China bilateral relations by Ravi Prasad Narayanan is another book. It focuses on China, but also challenges of India's neighborhood, why it's very important, why the India-China relationship is so important. And then there's the long game, how the Chinese negotiate with India by former Foreign Secretary Vijay Gokhale. And there's there's a fairly irreverent and critical view of the Modi government's choices called The Price of Modi Years by Akar Patel. It has a specific chapter on foreign policy you might find fun to read. At The Hindu, there's, of course, much, much more on www.thehindu.com. Do join us again here on Worldview and from the team here. Thanks for watching.